When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Fresh from Conservative Party conference, we talk about... What Stephen learned about the Conservative Party. Anoush tells me about Labour's plans to scrap universal credit. And you ask us, will the next election be about Brexit? So I'm joined by Stephen and comfortably with two mic guards in between us because he has got the uh, infamous conference cold after coming back from Conservative Party conference on the train from Manchester today. Stephen, how are you feeling? I'm actually... I I actually feel fine. Um... I actually feel great, to be honest, which I, I've kept saying. You sound like we, Macy Gray. Yeah, I kept saying, yeah, like, ha, yeah, was, I'm on the phone and they're like, you sound terrible. I was like, I feel great. <laughs> I don't understand why people think that. <clears throat> but yeah, so fortunately, the only the only thing of me which seems to have negative after effects is my throat and nose. But um, it was odd because I, in many ways, found this the most useful Conservative Party conference I've ever been to because... The effect of the suspension being undone is, I think, every lobbyist who didn't want to go basically went, right, that's my excuse, I'm going to take it. Which meant that a lot of the time at Tory party conference, I feel like you don't have much of a sense of what the activists feel like, and it's so hard to talk to any activist, which, to me at least, is the useful thing about conference season, right, is ultimately I can speak to MPs and staffers pretty easily in Westminster, and I can go home at the end of the evening. Mm. The value of conference is getting to find out how the grassroots rank and file of our political parties feels about things. And a lot of the time, and I think this is just true of whoever the governing party is, yeah. but a lot of the time when you're at the governing party's conference, you spend a lot of time being like, oh no, you work for, you know, Dong Energy. <laughs> that's a real <laughs> that company. That's one of our ads? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some lobbyist or something. And obviously, you know, uh, no shade to, to lobbyists, many of whom listen to this podcast, but I don't, their, their opinion does not tell me what the conservative rank and file thinks mm. because most of them aren't the conservative rank and file. Whereas this was quite useful in the, there were many, well, there, were, there weren't more members than usual, but there were more members per head than usual, and it was easier to get a sense of what the feeling of it was. And obviously it was quite upbeat. Well, obviously last year all of the energy was around, you know, huge cues for Jacob Rees-Mogg, yeah. huge cues for Boris Johnson. That, of course, hasn't changed, but that's moved from the fringe of the conference to, to its heart. I think, so John has written, you know, a you know, very well written piece about what his impression of the conference were, which I enjoyed. But I must admit, his impression, which is that it didn't feel like this was a party which absorbed and it was on the brink of losing power, was very much not my impression. There were lots of people who were very much like, it's brilliant, I've got the party I want. 
but every day I don't think I went more than an hour and admittedly I think I'm probably one of the most prominent journalists to have gone okay well this may work in small towns but there's this thing called the south of England (laughs) and there's this thing called the Liberal Democrats and this thing called the SNP so it's risky so maybe I yeah maybe I, I slightly ended up with a disproportionate thing but I felt although it's a minority of the party at every level every hour I would speak to you know whether it was a councillor or mm. an activist or an MP or a minister or a special advisor who would say I don't think this can possibly work I don't believe you know, you know someone said to me they were just like I just don't they were like I just don't believe that we will be able to gain enough in small towns to make up for what is happening to our vote in London and it's happening wow. to our vote in the South. And it was interesting how they're, although there is, you know, a huge amount of joy and, you know, they're basically just having their stomachs tickled in the conference centre. Yeah. I do think there is a an ambient awareness that there is, you know, a hefty downsize electoral risk. Obviously, another nerving thing is there is not among the activist base any kind of awareness of the downside, you know, the kind of downside risk in your life. What if, you know, the worst projections of No Deal are right? What does that do to your party? Yeah. And I think, you know, the odd thing about this conference from a coverage perspective, I kind of found, struggled with it for the same reason I struggled with Labour last year. Mm. With Labour last year, day one, you're like, this is a very well-run conference based around their tactical analysis and what they need to do to do better than 2017 is improve their performance in leave voting small towns. And everything Labour did in 2018's conference was calibrated around that. But yeah. once you'd said it on day one... There was not an awful lot left to analyse about their political strategy, which is nice in a way and frees you up to just write about policy. As with that conference last year, I wrote quite a lot about the actual sort of policy stuff coming through. But um, it also means that you kind of have this slight weirdness of like what is the, the conference feels like it lacks sort of momentum in an old way because weirdly precisely because of the momentum it, it was doing, I think probably quite a good job of conveying from the outside. No one's really interested in someone's outlook who wasn't actually there. But I was covering other stories in London, mainly looking at homelessness over the time that you were at Conservative Party conference. So I was following it like I probably would have followed the conference as a regular sort of news consumer. And the main story that seemed to overarch and overshadow most of the conference were these allegations against Boris Johnson by the um, columnist in the Sunday Times and the follow-up questions that journalists were asking him and also his sort of you know, representatives on planet Earth and how they were sort of saying the wrong thing or saying the right thing but sounding disloyal. And that, to me, seemed to colour quite a lot of the sort of... I mean, it sounds cynical and maybe a bit glib, but the sort of air war of the of the conference, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it is... I mean, I think it's actually always useful to get a sense because this thing, you always have this weird thing where kind of at every conference, MPs go up to journalists and go, how do you think it's, it's, it's going? And you're kind of like, well, your guess is as good as mine because there's this thing called the six and the ten which i mm. i never get time to watch at conference and yeah like yeah the six and the ten are the are the key times where you're just like eating the leftover canapes yeah <laughs> um arriving at a restaurant booking where you're like i know that i've said six and i know that i phoned three times to change the number to seven and then to eight <laughs> and then back to seven but actually it's now eight again i'm really sorry could we have another chair um i mean did that feel like it was a a story there? Did it feel like so, it was derailing? So it's interesting because the the extent to which that came up, speaking to activists, the thing lots of them said was, wow, there are no women here. Now, obviously, there are never as many women at Conservative Party conference as men. In any party? In any Well, this is actually a really interesting thing about the, the two surges that we've seen. In the, the Lib Dem surge meant they went from being a 50-50 party to 
a 60-30 party, which is the normal yeah. in heavy inverted commas. 16 men. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the normal demographic pattern for a political party. Labour's surge had the reverse option. They went from having the normal 60-30, you know, disproportionate representation of, of, of men in their rank and file to 50-50, which is obviously still a... Actually, it's an interesting question. Is it a slight... I was going to say it's obviously still a slight over-representation because women are more than 50% of the population. Mm. But then I think, actually, in terms of Labour voters, because of when you control for age, are women a disproportionate... You know, is that more than you would expect? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, but a better gender but, balance. But a, better, but a better gender balance. And it's interesting that those two surges have had the reverse effect on their party's rank and file. And so lots of people kind of would speculate it to me, is this women activists voting with their feet? Which it could be. Obviously, that is the simplest explanation. I'm a bit leery of it for the basic reason that party memberships are so unrepresentative of their voters. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, to, the Ur example, of course, in order to the most fun, is Corbyn's electoral successes in 2017 versus Corbyn's er- areas of, of, I mean, strength. It kind of understates it because he obviously won in the landslide, so he ha- had very few areas of non-strength, as yeah. it were, in the 2016 leadership election. But essentially, the worst Corbyn did relative to his own performance in 2016 in the leadership election the better he did in the leadership election in the in the relative region right like oh, his see. weakest his weakest area in the leadership election in both times was london and scotland where did he gain the most votes london where did he gain seats uh, against expectations scotland yeah just yeah the, the the type of person who joins a political party tends to have so much more in common with other people who join a political party <laughs> in terms of their demographic profile obviously not in terms of their attitudinal profile I think in some ways I'm always a bit dubious about kind of going, ah, so the explanation which makes sense for the real world probably also makes sense for the party membership. Yeah. Another good example with Labour is the Labour membership is overwhelmingly white. The The Labour vote is much more ethnically diverse. And when you think about the polls and indeed the Euros, the Labour vote now must be even more ethnically diverse. Yeah, as a, yeah the average Labour, M- a Labour voter is, is getting more ethnic, as it were, just because... Ethnic minority voters are more loyal to Labour, mm. so I kind of I so I don't know if it was just the more of the lobbyists were women, and it's just that that means that you're like, oh wow, there are really no women here, or if it is, because obviously it could simply be the simplest explanation, which is women voting with their feet because of their concerns about Boris Johnson. I feel like, in an odd way, the groping story is yeah. I mean, I start from the presumption, and I don't think people make up fake accusations on the whole. Mm. Uh, so I start from the presumption that it's probably true. But I kind of think that the perception is that Boris Johnson is a bit sleazy anyway. Yeah. And if you dislike him, and he's a player if you like him. Whereas yeah. I think the Arcuri thing, where there are allegations about effectively government spending at City Hall, is potentially more damaging because the perception of corruption is, is a new accusation. Mm. And he was referred to the police it Which sounds, you know, a lot more official. Yeah, although it will complete our transition post-Brexit into kind of like towards Italy if we um, have a situation in which a strong man is comfortably re-elected while being investigated for <laughs> corruption. Yeah, well, well maybe I, I'm trying, I keep trying to work out is like, is Boris his electoral model? I actually don't think Trump is a very good model. I think it feels to me far closer to to Berlusconi, this kind of, oh, I'm not of the establishment, I'm I'm anti-system but obviously of the mainstream right. Uh-huh. Or more like Netanyahu, where again, it's, uh, you know, those elites, you know, those terrible Tel Aviv intellectuals, you know, they don't understand it like I I do. I I am the real people. 
and again, yeah, this kind of yeah, this kind of wafts of corruption, which mm. yeah, uh, until relatively recently, did not seem to be a particular barrier to, to successful re-elections. So maybe that is simply you know about how we complete the look, mm. uh, <laughs> the full set. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And the question we've been asked this week is, last time the conventional wisdom was that it would be a Brexit election. Once again, the conventional wisdom is it will be a Brexit election. Why will it or won't? Yeah, essentially. I've slightly mangled that question because... Yeah, about, yeah. Will, will the next election... We've taken for granted that the next election will be about Brexit, but will that be the main driver of people's votes yeah it's a good question because that is what happened in the last election a lot of the focus of the reporting as well as the interviewing you know the radio interviews and everything was all about brexit but actually after actually the result came out and it was so unexpected and the polls hadn't or most of the polls hadn't predicted such a result there was a lot of talk about what people were actually voting on and that tended to be you know the fact of schools cuts in certain areas, the ivory trade ban not, yeah. disappearing from the manifesto. Is that what happened? Um, yeah. was another one. And fox hunting as well on the Conservative yeah. manifesto. And the dementia thought. tax. Yeah, yeah, the dementia tax as well. Although that was covered during the campaign, whereas I think some of the other stuff kind of came out afterwards yeah. in terms of what people were searching and what was going viral online. Yeah, and what people listed as reasons to change their vote in bears. The, the really fascinating thing actually about the last election now is... All of the evidence, both from at the time and from what the British Electoral Survey stuff shows, is that the movement of Remainers to Labour was not primarily about stopping Brexit. Mm. However, in many ways, right, it's a bit like if someone says, I always knew I would break out, break up with so-and-so. I always knew it was a doomed relationship. In no way, it doesn't matter if it's true, because mm. if someone believes that to be true, the relationship is dead anyway, right? Yeah. And even though the... The evidential basis for the claim that, you know, we hear a lot from listeners and readers that they voted Labour to stop Brexit. And in some cases with people who, who email me regularly, I, I could, if I were feeling sufficiently passive aggressive, email them back with things they said at the time to indicate that actually, no, they, that, That's not Brexit, what they Brexit was not what they were thinking about at the time. Yeah. But people believe Brexit was what they were thinking about at the time last time and they were sold something they didn't buy. It's not true, but they believe it to be true, which is ultimately which is the, same, the thing. same thing, yeah, in terms of voter behaviour. Now, I think one of the reasons why the last election wasn't a Brexit election is the two major parties had, OK, not not the same Brexit position, because, you know, there is a huge and significant difference between the distant, pretty hard Brexit negotiated by Theresa May and something softer, and, you know, if you don't think so, you know, well, clearly you're not employed in, you know, the 
manufacturing industry. But because they essentially, you know, it was like a, what's your Brexit position? I accept the result. Yeah. And the one party, well, the, the two parties which didn't, for various reasons, the Green Party did not get the boost that I and lots of people in the Green Party expected and it would have from having Caroline Lucas as its leader and the Liberal Democrat campaign. Well, we've, we've, we've sort of discussed what yeah. happened with that many times. So, yeah, I don't know. that I kind of think that the difference is that there is a clear dividing line yeah. between both the big two and the Liberal Democrats look more viable, have come off the back of more successes. Joe Swinson's campaign is not going to detonate at launch in the same way. But equally, the statutory minimum for a campaign is 25 days and journalists get bored. People don't just vote on Brexit. So I think it will move away to other issues. What do you think? Yeah. No, I mean, when you look back at the election last time and you try and think of the difference between Labour and Conservatives' Brexit policies, there wasn't that much difference, whereas now there really is quite a big difference between them. So I think that will obviously factor higher in people's decisions than it did last time round. But I do think there will be other concerns too that might come into it that the parties, either party might not necessarily anticipate. We don't know when the election's going to be, but we're getting towards winter and the NHS always struggles at winter when people go in with flu and (coughs) they have, you know, overcrowded beds, particularly with the social care system. Yes, you know, Boris Johnson wants to put more money into it to fix it, but those those results are not going to be seen for a very long time. But there will be more focus on them because those those kind of spending commitments are part of will be part of the Conservative manifesto. So we've spoken about this on the podcast before, but you know, when they're making their reposts to people asking questions about austerity by saying, Oh, but we've promised X billion to this this service, you then look at this service and it's falling apart. So There will be more focus on that by virtue of the fact that the Conservatives have made more of a thing of spending commitments. And those, well, particularly the NHS and social care, I think, will will be high in people's considerations over winter or the lead up to winter. Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, I mean, so, Casey, another set of announcements at this conference, right? So Sajid Javid essentially re-announced Osborne's target to Mm. get it to 60% of median earnings and then announced a very sensible cleaning up measure, which is the... Essentially, when Osborne increased the minimum wage in the way he did, he significantly increased the gap between the wage for under 25 yeah. and over it. Because only on, which the bigger the gap becomes, the more you start to incentivize, you know, incredibly bad behavior, you know, discrimination to, towards the old, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Sadie Javid essentially said, "We're effectively just going to fix that. Yeah. Those four years are going to get the wage increase too." Yeah, which makes sense as a cleaning up policy. And you know, I think actually the median earnings target obviously has been a success. It's increased the amount of of, of yeah, it's increased the earning piles of the poorest. It obviously has gone nowhere near to replacing uh, lost earnings due to cuts to working tax credits and and the, and the like. But you know, it, it's a good a good policy. The problem is, is it just feels nightmarish to me to go into an election in which wages have not yet gone up. Yeah. <laughs> in which you're going, I've done this thing. The their economic position feels so vulnerable to me then I, I just feel like there are lots of reasons why it might not activate. But yeah, I, I, just, I just do think boredom is quite a underrated force. Like You see it with the, the Government of National Unity chat, right? Mm. Where And this may be deeply unfair, but I think one of the reasons why it gets so much purchase, particularly among uh, the, the broadcasters, is people just prefer to talk about personalities than the chewy policy of, you know, this customs frontier, that customs frontier. Yeah. And that is the problem... I think with anyone saying, oh, it will solely be a Brexit election. Brexit is quite dense 
and quite dull. And journalists prefer talking about personalities, the NHS, schools, things which are tangible and understandable. And, yeah. and also things which look good on TV, you know, yeah. going around a hospital, as we've seen, actually, to the extreme example with Boris Johnson's recent visit, is good TV footage. Talking yeah. about Brexit, it's not easy TV footage. Yeah. It's just Especially like, oh, not with Parliament sitting. Yeah, oh yeah, let's just go to Dover again or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah I think that's exactly it. And I think... That to me is why, although I think Brexit will play a much bigger role, I don't think it will be the only issue by a long chalk. So Anoush, kind of in between the conferences, something which kind of got lost just because of our deadlines and one of the things we didn't really talk about is Labour's new plans for universal credit. So what are Labour's new plans for universal credit? Okay, so Labour's new plans for universal credit have been billed as they're scrapping it. But actually, that's not quite true. They are keeping it. They're just heavily reforming it. And essentially, these reforms are clearing up the problems with it that have been most reported by charities that are on the front line, people who use it, etc. The kind of stuff that I've been reporting on for a while. So the main changes they want to make, if you don't mind me whipping through them, are ending the five-week wait so universal credit has a five-week wait for your first payment built into it by design it used to be longer but the conservatives changed it but they they obviously didn't change it enough because people food bank use is rising because of that wait what do you do in that five-week gap if you don't have any savings um or you you know you don't have uh, anything else or anyone else to rely on which is something they for some reason didn't really seem to have thought of they're also going to scrap the benefit cap and the two-child benefit limit, which is this sort of quite grim policy where you're trying to incentivize people not to have more than two children, but that's obviously been proved by history not, not to be the kind of thing that works, um, apart from when Ian Duncan Smith announces it to a Conservative Party conference floor. Scrapping the rape clause, which is another particularly tasteless part of universal credit where you have to prove that you had your child via rape if you want to get benefits for them if you've got more than two children so yeah so scrapping so essentially yeah. scrapping the first scraps the second by yeah default, yeah yeah right. by default yeah reviewing the sanctions system so sanctions has, have, has been a big problem even before universal credit um sort of these ridiculous standards that you hold claimants to so i've heard lots of stories the most recent one from the food bank that i most recently visited was a man was told that he had to go to an interview for a job as a forklift truck driver even though he didn't have the qualification for it and he told the job center person i i'm not qualified to do that job i won't get it and they said you have to do the interview or you won't get x benefit so he went and it was a long way away and he on his way back because the interview went on longer than he thought he missed his next appointment with the job center or he was late for it and he was then sanctioned for six months so you know you hear these kind of stories and they are completely bizarre and so there has to be some kind of reform of the system and then they want to rename the dwp the department for social security to try and make it sound a little bit more like it's actually helping people. They want to try and put it on the same level as the NHS in terms of our sort of national national story, something there to help people, something to be fond of, rather than something that's just associated with taking money away from you and punishing you. And they also want to try and change, because universal credit is sort of digital first, and that is a big problem for people who don't have access to computers or the internet or don't have the ability to use them. And there's not enough staff to really support people if they don't have those abilities. So they want to hire more staff and get rid of the the digital only sort of premise. 
So those are all the main changes. And it's actually been a long time running. Labour's been reviewing their welfare policy for a year. And, you know, it's not been an easy ride because universal credit was an idea. It was originally a Labour idea. And it, you know, on paper is a good idea, rolling six benefits into one to make it simpler for the user as well as for the government. And the benefit system was extremely complicated beforehand with tax credits as well. So it's an understandable policy. It was born in sort of Labour's last days in government, not days, but, you know, last period in government. So it's not necessarily... The system isn't necessarily a bad idea, it's just the way it's been carried out, which is what one of Universal Credit's main architects has been saying recently as well. Really, the big problem is, what do you want Universal Credit to do? So the Conservatives introduced it partly to save money, but also partly because they wanted to change people's behaviour. Now, what does Labour want Universal Credit to do? So that's the big question, you know, it doesn't really matter what the system's called. It's what what your aim is. And the Labour have said they'll put three billion a year into it in order because they think that's an investment and people will then end up claiming less and less. And so you'll get that money back. That's a behaviour change. How are you going to achieve that? And I think an awful lot outside of the benefit system has to change in order to to achieve that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think yeah, the the, the fixes are hugely positive. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, in a way, it's kind of like having spent. So basically, in some ways, the most arid argument than the existing kind of, you know, from the Liberal Democrats all throughout the Labour Party is basically kind of, do we think universal credit is bad in itself or do Mm. we think it is good but badly underfunded and implemented? And the reason why I think it's a bit arid is whichever one of those premises you start from, you end up with something which looks an awful lot like a fixed universal credit, whether or not your, (laughs) your plan is to go, well, I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't do that, but it's still called universal credit. Or you're like, I'll scrap it and I'll replace it with something... And it's just like where it's just like, and uh, we'll call it whole credit. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And this is part of a broader interesting pattern with Labour in the last couple of months. Essentially, where kind of underperforming shadow teams, I think there's been a kind of conscious cleaning up of like, okay, we're going to have a Royal Commission, which will basically be about ending the war on drugs. Okay, we will. Yeah, we will fix these things about universal credit and we'll look about reforming it sort of later down the, the line. I think in a way the, the, the missing part is Labour talks a lot about a national education service. It's still not really clear what it what it wants that to be beyond parity of esteem for, for FE. Yeah. But I do think part of the, the kind of missing ingredient here is just how bad we are at upskilling people when they're unemployed, which kind of seems like the obvious thing than universal credit and job centers could because the English thing I think if you tie to a child the word job center I think their idea of it would perversely be a lot closer to a useful policy yeah, thing definitely they'd be like oh yeah. what like you know where you like learn about getting a job or get more experience for things and it's just like yeah that no that's that would be good but no. <laughs> yeah no that's very true that's a big part of it. And, and you know, when you've asked lots of the shadow teams about details about their policies, like the National Education Service, like what their new welfare policy is going to be, they haven't really been able to answer the question for a very long time. So I think Labour, lots of Labour Party figures will be relieved that they've got a more concrete policy on this now. Yeah, it kind of, so the other thing, obviously, we haven't had time to talk about this week, or I've written about it in the magazine, of course, is deselection, or actually, to be honest, more accurately, the failure to successfully deselect very many Labour MPs. Yeah. There are many reasons why that is bad news for the Corbyn project. But one of them is, at the moment, they they have to cho- choose between politically onside and competence a lot of the time. Yeah. There are some people who are competent and politically onside, but there are some people who aren't, and ultimately you can't 
you can't for, have a successful radical government if you if you have to make that choice some of the time. You have to have a situation where you can staff your government with people who are on side and competent. And I think it's striking that what's happened in a lot of these policy areas where they've improved, essentially the, the strong ministers, yeah, like the UC stuff, essentially John McDonnell, after watching, you know, two, in my view, underpowered and not very good shadow welfare leaders kind of flop around, essentially came down from one high and went, there's money to fix these things. We'll look at whether or not we want something new, you know, over the course of the of the office, which to me at least feels like code for hopefully someone will emerge who is better at running this department than, the, <laughs> yeah. than what we have at the moment. Although obviously it is important to them in terms of control of the party, I think it is underpriced how much the failure at the moment to remake the parliamentary party is a huge problem for them if they get into government, although of course that if feels quite load-bearing at the moment. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague Stephen Bush. We're recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. And our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.